With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, Husky fans, and welcome to another episode of the Yukon Pod. This is Amon Kidwai. I'm joined by Daniel Connolly and Dan Madigan, as always. We have a ton of exciting stuff to talk about, including postseason hopes and dreams for the hockey teams, uh, for the hockey team, as well as the basketball teams. Um, but to start, women's soccer having a nice start to their season. Daniel Connolly, you want to tell us what's up with the squad in their third year under their new head coach? Yeah, I think it's a very interesting year for Margaret Rodriguez's team this year because, as I think I've said before, it's her first freshman class that the entire staff has recruited. Either the previous classes were either recruited under Len Santiris or she did all the recruiting on her own. So this is the first one that the entire staff did on did together. And I think there's definitely some clear progress in this squad compared to years past, even if it's, it's definitely still a building project. They're definitely not back to where they used to be. I'm not totally sold that it is an NCAA tournament team, even though it's early in the year. So they started the year two and zero. they had two, two, nothing wins over local teams, URI and Northeastern. They lost two, one at Providence and then tied Villanova zero, zero. So at the very least, their defense has been very solid this season. They have a very, very good young core with a lot of sophomores and freshmen on in defense. The biggest issue for them this season, which I think is going to be a continuous issue for, for every game is that they just really seem to struggle on offense. They did score two goals in those first two games. You can see that they have a lot of talent. A lot of it is very young or it's just not all together yet. It still feels a little disjointed on offense where maybe one player make a nice run, get near the box, but then, the connecting pass or the final pass just isn't there. The finishing isn't there. So that's partially something that comes with time. And then also you just sometimes need better players and they've got a couple really good attackers coming in as freshmen, but as we know with pretty much all college boards, you just can't rely a ton on freshmen. So I think they'll score enough to the point where they will be a respectable side and someone that can compete with, I'd say most teams in the Big East, I think some of the more powerhouse squads, mostly Georgetown, might be a little tougher for them to deal with. But I think they should be right in the mix for, if not the second place in the East Division, at least third. I'd be surprised if they finished towards the bottom because they definitely have the talent. They definitely are an organized, cohesive unit, especially on the defensive end. And it is good to see some substantial progress because even as I say these things out, yeah, their two nothing wins aren't super impressive, or they only tied zero zero. Those are all games that this team definitely would have lost two years ago, and probably would have lost or would have given up a goal or something like that. Maybe they would have only tied them last year. So it's definitely a step in the right direction. I just think it is a pretty big rebuilding progress process for Margaret Rodriguez. But the big step is recruiting, and she's been really happy with her recruiting. So. The needle's definitely pointing up, even if it's just not moving at a super fast pace right now. 
Yeah, I think it's nice to see them making progress. We know with a new coach, that's that's never a guarantee. So notable progress is always a positive sign. And I think, again, we have reason to believe the league, this league will be a little bit of a boon for that program as well. Um, and then just a reminder to our listeners at home that the soccer teams are playing uh, spring season this year, uh, delayed due to COVID-19. Um, unfortunately, some tough news for the, the men's team. Uh, head coach Ray Reed had to take uh, an extended leave of absence from the team, which he's currently on. Um, we know that this is due to, to a family issue. Um, so, you know, our thoughts are with, with coach Reed at this time. Um, and, and the players and coaches who have to kind of go on, go on without him knowing that their head coach is, is going through something in this, in this moment. Right. And, Ray Reed is obviously a legend of the sport for what he's done both at UConn and previously at Southern Connecticut. And obviously you hope that he comes back from this and can go out the way he wants. Associate head coach Mike Miller is taking over the head coaching duties. And from what I know from being around the men's soccer program and knowing people in it, it sounds like Mike Miller has been running a lot of the day-to-day things with the program in the last few years since he's taken over. So I don't think it'll be too dramatic of a change for the team with him as fully in charge. Now it's just, maybe you don't have Ray Reed making the, I guess, longer term or the overall decisions guiding the program, but Miller's been on his staff for a handful of years now. So I can't imagine it's anything dramatically different. They've also had a bit of a tough start to the year, had some injuries, have trouble scoring as well. So it looks like it might be another tough year, but I do like some of the freshmen that they have. So hard to tell with, the UConn men's soccer, which direction they're ever trending in. But yeah, hopefully Ray Reed will be able to get back sooner rather than later. Yeah, it's a bummer that, you know, Reed isn't able to, fin- you know, might not be able to finish out this season, considering it might be one of his last. And he's, you know, one of the big reasons that UConn is able to have this excellent soccer stadium. Um, he was a big, a big factor in, in procuring the necessary fundraising and, and getting that stuff taken care of. I remember when I was covering the team during my time at the DC, he was kind of talking about what that meant and uh, you know, won a championship in 2000 with UConn, won a few at Southern Connecticut before that, um, you know, outside of Joe Maroney helped build this program and kind of take it to the next level. So uh, hopefully everything's, you know, trending upward with, with Ray um, and he'll be back on the sidelines soon enough and, and go out on his terms, like you said, Dan. So speaking of another program, that's UConn program on the rise, we've got UConn men's hockey, Mike Cavanaugh doing his best to build up a program as they are trying to find their way in the ultra competitive hockey East. Um, Daniel, the ice bus ended its season emphatically with a impressive win over number 15 Providence. Can you tell us why that win was so significant for the UConn men's hockey program? So just the background is Hockey East decided about midway through the year that they were just going to schedule games week by week. So going into the last weekend of the season, they pretty much made pairings that would best that would have that would be the most exciting games to watch in the standings. And the standings this year are determined by the Hockey East Power Index, which is some mystery formula that ranks teams because there's an imbalance of games. So Because of that, UConn went into the final game of the season against Providence with a .02 lead over the Friars. And for reference, a win 
generally pushes a team up between 70.75 and a full point. So it was a razor thin margin. Whoever won the game was going to get fourth place in hockey East. And with that home ice, UConn had never finished higher than fifth place in the conference. So UConn comes out one of the biggest regular season games in program history. They score four goals in the first period and then at a fifth 25 seconds into the second period, it was one of the most just, I couldn't believe what I was seeing while watching the game. And I haven't covered UConn Mentaki super long. This is my third season. And the only real comparison that I could make to the game in my own head was last season, they went up to UNH and went up on the Wildcats three, nothing. And I think the first six minutes, it was just this very quick barrage that they all of a sudden scored a bunch of goals. And it felt very similar to that. The only difference is not only was that UNH game far less important than this Providence game, UConn then let up all three goals in like the next six minutes and it was tied very shortly after. So it was just an incredible display from the team. They just had so much energy, came out with so much intensity. And I think one of the funniest things about it was Yakum Kondalik, one of their best players, junior forward. He came into the game with 17 assists and zero goals. And he left the first period with three goals and 17 assists. He scored three goals in the span of 10 minutes, had a hat trick all on the power play. So he played a big part in getting UConn up. So they win, they finish in fourth. And the reward for doing that is playing at home against Providence, basically the exact same game that they had just played. And it's, in my view, I think it's probably the biggest game in the program's history ever, even going back way into the sixties when they were winning games 30 to 29, because with the NCAA field, instead of it being picked by a metric called pairwise, which it normally is every single season, the NCAA selection, the NCAA is using a selection committee because there's been almost no non-conference play. So pairwise isn't really a usable metric this season. So because of that, it looks like hockey is definitely getting three teams into the field and it looks pretty good that they're going to get a fourth team into the field, except UConn really needs to win this game because to get an at-large bid, a program needs to have a 500 record or above. And right now UConn's at 500, but if they lose to Providence in the quarterfinals, they drop below 500 and wouldn't be eligible. And Providence could also surpass them in whatever measurement the selection committee is using. So if UConn wins this game in the quarterfinals, they'll not only lock in a record above 500 or at 500 or above, they'll definitely take Providence out of the equation. So I think if they win that game, there's a very, very good chance they get their first ever at-large bid to an NCAA tournament, which would just be a huge, huge step for the program. Daniel, remind us of a few quick important details. How many teams make the NCAA tournament at the end of the year? Right. So only 16 teams make it. So it's not like basketball where there's a bunch of teams that get in. It's pretty hard for an app to get an at-large bid. And then the other thing just different about this year, hockey's tournament is going to be a single elimination. So, you know, I think you, I'd love to hear your thoughts, but it definitely provides some hope for UConn, I think, to even be able to make a run um, in this format in the, in the hockey's tournament. It goes both ways because yeah, definitely UConn. I feel like it's easier to make a run this way when you can just get hot or maybe goaltender Tomasz Womaszka catches fire and he helps get them to the championship and win that way. But this is a very good team. So I feel like the positive side is that the downside is they could lose against Providence one game, suddenly your season's over. Whereas if it was a normal 
double elimination type format, then you lose that first game. You still have a chance to come back and win two more, even just get one win to keep your season going, something like that. So, yeah, there's no room for error in this quarterfinal for UConn. And I feel like it's pretty tough. This is going to be their fourth game against Providence. They've won two of them, and they just played Providence. So I I like their chances against Providence just because they have Vlad first off back, who when he's in the lineup, they have one of the best offenses and one of the best power plays in the country. And, and also just Providence really, really has not impressed me anytime I've seen them play, not just against UConn. They've had some pretty big losses to the better teams in the conference. So at the same time, you just never know. And UConn still hasn't won a playoff game. So it's one of those things that until they do win it and get that monkey off their back, you're still not quite sure that they can do it. So for the fans keeping track at home, a lot of potential firsts for UConn men's hockey this year. Uh, on the line in this upcoming game. That's going to be uh, Sunday the 14th at 3.30 p.m. at the Magical Free Decise Forum. Um, we'll, we might be watching some other things on that day as well. Uh, it is Selection Sunday, but um, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, UConn fans should try and watch it. Uh, where, where can they do that if they want to? It'll be available for free on streaming, right? Yeah, so it'll be streamed for free on Sports Live. It's the streaming site that Hockey East has been using to show all the games in the conference for free this year. It is a little weird, though, because Nessener's broadcasting all but two games. One of those games is a first-round matchup up at Maine, so I don't blame Hockey East for not, or Nesson for not wanting to go up there. UConn is the only quarterfinal that's not going to be broadcast on Nesson which I understand the free to size form is really not the best drink in the country. It is one of the worst, but it just feels very, very disrespectful to both UConn and Providence to not show their playoff game, their quarterfinal playoff game on Nesson, even if it's not totally equipped to do TV, it's just, it feels very, it just feels like Nesson should do better. Honestly, Nesson hates our team. What the hell Nesson? Come on. Yeah, I mean, again, we, we know just exciting times around this program. So um, keep keep an eye out for that. And of course, tremendous coverage from, from Connolly on both the UConn blog and the UConn Hockey Hub, which has its own dedicated set of coverage and a podcast that you can listen to by becoming a member. We'll take a quick break and then talk about basketball. All right, folks, UConn baseball has gotten off to an interesting start to its season. Here to tell us a little bit more is Luke Swanson, the UConn blog's resident baseball and football expert. There's so much new about this year's team. Um, you know, what do you think is important for us to know in terms of um, the lineup and how it's changed from just last year's team? Well, I think a more... It, it honestly hasn't changed that much. And that's really the, the whole theme of college baseball this year is not too much has changed. Everyone got an, a year of eligibility back from last year. So a lot of the people that you uh, know and love from pe previous UConn seasons are still there. You still have uh, Christian Fedco in the middle of the order has come up with a bunch of clutch hits in the past. You have, uh, Pat Winkle behind the plate. He missed, uh, he was going to miss last year uh, due to Tommy John surgery. He's just a, a big hitting catcher, really good defensively. Uh, even guys like David, David Langer at third 
and Chris Winkle in the outfield, Kyle Fedko in the outfield. They're all back from uh, two seasons ago now. So it's really a similar team. And then you have a lot of newcomers coming in. Uh, uh, Eric Stock transfer and uh, T.C. Simmons, freshman, and Chris Brown, another freshman. They're kind of making their impact. And so the thing with UConn this year is they're really deep because you really have five, well, technically more than five, but uh, for all intents and purposes, five whole classes here. And so you get everyone who would have been on the team now this year, plus the people who came back for a year of extra eligibility, like uh, Winkle, uh, Caleb Worcester, and some of those guys, and uh, other people who might have been affected by the MLB kind of shortening their draft. Like uh, uh, the Dans are more in tune with MLB draft stuff than even I am. So they'd be able to attest to this, that uh, not as many people were selected, obviously, this year's draft versus uh, previous years. So you have a lot of guys like Reggie Crawford and uh, Kill Worcester coming, kind of coming back. And uh, even there, the ace, uh, new ace, Ben Kasparius, he probably would have gotten drafted and left if it weren't for the shortened draft. So you have a whole ton of depth in this UConn team. But as we'll kind of go through, Every, every other team in college baseball also has the same depth because they all have these kind of five five years worth of players on their roster. So even though you might look at the UConn lineup and say, "Oh my gosh, that's stacked," they're going to run the they're going to run the college baseball this year. Every other team has the same exact things going on. So, well, we knew hopes were high for this team before the season, even higher than they had been in the past. I would say. Um, they've gotten off to a four and six start to the year, played some really good teams. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on just how they've looked, uh, thus far after kind of three weekends of play? Well, you look at four and six, it's below 500. It's not necessarily what you would expect, but, uh, it's UConn and pretty much ever since I've been following the program, they've had absolutely stacked to non-conference schedules. So I wouldn't say that's an excuse. I, I don't know if their excuse is even the right word for uh, starting out for their starting out under 500, but it's certainly certainly been a factor there. West Virginia uh, ranked in the top 25. Southern Mississippi always always in and around the NCAA tournament, and uh, Coastal obviously NCAA tournament winners in 2017. So it's really just kind of a murderer's row this year. Uh, even more so than years past, because the Big East really isn't nearly as strong of, as a, of a baseball conference as the AAC and even the old Big East. So they've kind of had to beef it up along with the COVID scheduling this year. And uh, of all the games they've lost, I'm just looking here, they've lost one, two, three, four, five by one run. One, uh, one run, so... They've been playing really close games on the way to a four and six record and certainly not going to hurt them in RPI at the end of the year with all these strong, with all these strong teams on the schedule. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah so Luke, tell me, I know you're, we've kind of talked about the team overall this season, but I do want to kind of dive into the first baseman, Reggie Crawford. I know he's kind of, been a monster this year and it was something that's been expected, but it seems like he's off to an even hotter start than people might've predicted. 
Yeah, he. you see him on the mound. He's really just an intimidating presence because I don't want to get all like NFL draft on you here, but he's just a, a specimen. 762 slugging percentage to start the year. Absolutely ridiculous. He has 13 hits, eight of those extra bases, two doubles, a triple, and five home runs. Uh, for reference, last uh, in 2019, I believe uh, UConn's home run leader was Kyler Fedko, and I believe he had four home runs. So kind of passing that in three series worth of games is not normal, I would say. It's uh, pretty ridiculous. Yeah. No, you're right. I mean, I know Penders has always talked about how Crawford isn't necessarily the type of recruit that they can usually get to stores because – you know, that type of player is either going to uh, a premier power five program or getting drafted in the MLB draft. And, you know, it seems like he's kind of one of these guys that Penders brought in, kind of caught Crawford at the right time and is able to put him in, surround him with a ton of other talent and put together, you know, a really impressive team. So out of the first 10 games that you've seen so far outside of Crawford, um, and I know you, I think you talked about the ace Ben Kasparius as well. Is there another one or two players that have really stuck out to you and impressed you so far, because I know you've been watching pretty much uh, every pitch from, from the start of the season in February. Well, Kasper is just to go back on him a little, he's just really impressive. Obviously watching him on the mound, he's really that definition of a competitor. Uh, some would say uh, he's the kind of <laughs> the t- prototypical psycho college baseball starter you see plenty of them throughout the years the coach pulls him and he's st- still staring down the batter and all that crazy stuff like that i love those type of videos but yeah he's he's been super impressive just a everyone talks about how big of a competitor he is on the mound and he's got really really great stuff he's got like six pitches three different fastballs, two breaking balls and a changeup. It's, and he's able to mix and match and locate tremendously. So I think it's a real blessing that UConn was able to get him back for this year with a short draft and everything. Cause he's just a really top level talent. I also wanted, what the heck was UNC doing playing him at third when he has stuff like this beats me. We know they love to cheat, but we did not know that they also like to misuse baseball talent. So interesting fact to add for UNC there. Anything else that stands out to you uh, just after the start of baseball season? Any parting thoughts or um, interesting upcoming events on the schedule? I'll just go back to one of the players. I I don't know if I actually answered Dan's question. Well, Kevin Freer, he's another, uh, another guy who's really impressed me this year or at least real really this weekend he got had his first home run last weekend and uh a couple extra base hits a couple of clutch rbis and redshirt freshman another connecticut guy from pocket so he's i think he's definitely one to watch out for the outfield i think would i would say the outfield's the least settled area on the team right now because another thing to mention this last uh weekend a couple of guys haven't really gotten off to the best starts of the season. Uh, Chris Winkle and Kyler Fedko, both really mainstays last year and the year before. They both they both were kind of dropped from the order this weekend because they just really haven't been hitting. I mean, Kyler Fedko has 
14 strikeouts already in the season. Chris Winkle is 15. So it's kind of opened up that outfield spot a little. And uh, freshman like T.C. Simmons, who's uh, really good defensively, and Eric Stock and Kevin Frere, they've really had a chance to come into the outfield and kind of make a name for themselves. And I think Frere definitely had the best uh, best weekend at the plate out of all of them. So he's definitely in the running to DH kind of more often than not once uh, those two other guys come back into the lineup, Cower and Chris. So that's one thing I wanted to mention. And the other thing I wanted to mention is we still don't really know if uh, fans will be allowed in the new ballpark. And the opening day is just a couple of weeks away for that. But hopefully, uh, hopefully fans can get out there with uh, the relaxation of some of the restrictions. I know. I, I think we're all looking forward to getting to see games in that ballpark. Sorry, Iman. No, no. Yeah, absolutely. So that's um, March 23rd. Is that the uh, expected opening day for uh, the first game at Elliott Ballpark? They'll be hosting Central. They've got a series this upcoming weekend at Texas Tech. Um, Luke, as a as a parting thought, do you want to just share, you know, UConn's in the Big East this year? Obviously, is there anyone we're concerned about um, in that league? I know UConn's predicted to uh, to win, but anyone anyone whose start to the season has warranted us uh, keeping an eye out on them in terms of the conference conference title race? Well, I will say St. John's is always a real massive pain in the butt for UConn. I'm pulling up their history right now, but just off the top of my head, it seems like it's always really a, a hard-fought hard fought, uh, non-conference midweek game per, uh, in recent seasons. And uh, the last 10 matchups between UConn and, and St. John's, UConn's only six and four. And in 2018, they went to Queens and they lost four to 14. Mm. So, and the two recent wins that they've had in uh, in uh, recent years, uh, that they've only been uh, one and two run wins. So it's always a hotly contested series when uh, I believe they're, go- yeah, they're going to St. John's this year. So, I definitely think it'll uh, it'll be tough. And uh, just looking at that uh, game for 2018 right now, they uh, tuned up Tim Kate. I don't know if uh, this uh, little-known UConn pitcher named Tim Kate, they absolutely demolished him. 11 hits and eight runs. Some of these Big East programs are no joke. I'm really just kind of singling out St. John's because there's definitely a history there. The only other uh, school of note, I don't want to say the only other school of note, but one of the other schools of notes in the Big East, Creighton, they play at the uh, TD Ameritrade Ballpark in Omaha. So that's a pretty cool little nugget. So of course, where the College World Series is held. Nice. So yeah, and UConn's going there this year. So at least they can say they'll uh, they'll have played in Omaha this year for sure. They'll play in Omaha and they might go back. Awesome, Luke. Well, thanks for the update on the baseball team. We'll catch you later. So uh, to move over to basketball, UConn women's hoops uh, just wrapped up the Big East tournament. Uh, To the surprise of nobody, they won. Won it pretty comfortably, closing it out with a 73-39 to win over Marquette. Um, Looks like the team's playing at their just absolute height uh, for this season. They seem to have it all figured out. Not too long ago, what, literally one week before they, they crushed Marquette in that game, 
They only beat them by 10 in their regular season finale. Um, so we got to be feeling pretty good about, about Gino and the squad right now in a year where people were kind of looking past UConn. Here they are, the number one uh, ranked team, and also, um, you know, looking and looking and playing like a national title favorite. Yeah, th- I mean, it's a new conference or an old new conference, however you want to talk about it. But it it was the same kind of deal for UConn at Mohegan Sun, right? They ran through everybody. They beat the Big East equivalent of USF in the conference championship, and you know, won another conference title. So they. Rolled past St. John's in the quarters in 177 to 41. Took down Maddie Segrist and Villanova in the semis, 84 to 39, and then won the conference championship against Marquette, who is, I believe, a shoe in NCAA tournament team. Dan, you can correct me here, but should make the field of 64 and, you know, probably has an outside shot to make it to the second weekend. So um, it looked like the old UConn teams of the Brianna Stewart era where they're just pounding opponents night in and night out. Um, even the legit NCAA tournament contenders. So, um, you know, Paige Beckers was her usual self. She got named the tournament's most outstanding player, but uh, Kristen Williams also really stepped up on both ends and really looked to kind of be the stopper that this team desperately needed um, in what was probably Dan, you can kind of back me up on this, but a shocking development, right? We didn't really expect Kristen Williams to become, you know, the defensive stopper for this team seemingly overnight. Right. I think if you told me at the beginning of the season that there was going to be a defensive stopper on this team by the end of the year, and it was, and I had to pick Kristen Williams, if she wasn't my last pick was going to be towards the bottom, just because she's never really shown that at all in her career. She's always been an offense first player and for her to go from, she, she's never been a defensive liability, but not a great defensive player to being someone that shut that in every single game, she held the first fifth and 11th leading scores in the big East to a total of 10 points across three games, including Maddie Segrist, who is a finalist for the Katrina McLean award, which goes to the best power forward in the country. So she was just unbelievable in the tournament. Really, as a whole, UConn's been on this upward trajectory since they lost to Arkansas back in January. They gave up 90 points in that game. And from that game where they just couldn't stop Arkansas in any way, either in man or zone, and Chelsea Dungy went off for 37 points, UConn's now become a very, very good defensive team with a player that is extremely good defensively and they can throw on an opposing team's best player and more or less forget about them. So it's, yeah, this team just keeps getting better and better. And really even just these three games in the big East tournament were a step above even their best performance previously. Amon, like you mentioned, they only beat Marquette by 10. It was a 40 minute battle. It was never really a close game, but UConn couldn't pull away in that game. And they were up by 19 at the end of the first quarter last night against Marquette. So this team's definitely playing its best basketball. I still think it has room to grow just because of how young of a team it is. So it's going to be exciting to see them get into the national NCAA tournament. And it looks like they're going to be the number one overall seed. If they're not the number one overall seed, they're going to be the second overall seed. So really if UConn's playing like this, I have a hard time seeing them lose. Yeah. And it makes sense. I mean, the defensive adjustments, 
Beckers has been a pretty good on-ball defender. Uh, she's been up there for for steals. She's been getting in the lanes and getting easy easy steals pretty much the whole season. Olivia Nelson Adote is one of the top shot blockers in the country. So there was pieces of a good defense in there. And I think what you said, Dan, the ability of Williams to kind of step up, um, trying to, you know, cement her legacy as one of the Yukon greats, right? Trying to get a, a national championship, uh, kind of turning it on late and trying to ramp things up at the right time. I think her emergence and as well as Nika Mule, who, you know, probably one of the grittiest players that the women's team has had in a while. She got popped, seemed like she had a black eye heading into the game on Saturday and then rolled her ankle Saturday, came back, no problem, played the rest of the tournament and, you know, was her usual self. But between the, you know, the growth of the freshman outside of Beckers between Mule and Aaliyah Edwards, Kristen Williams emergence as a defensive stopper and just overall, like you said, this team playing better when it really matters. Uh, you're, you're right. UConn is as legitimate of a national championship contender as they've ever been, uh, especially this season. Right. And not only did Nika play all three games with a pretty nasty black eye in the first game of the tournament, she rolls her ankle on a fast break, goes down under the basket, gets basically carried off the floor. She can't put any weight on that left leg, comes back on crutches and then plays 18 minutes the next night. And I think she played 31 minutes the last night against Marquette. She's, she's not human. I don't know what she's made of, but it's definitely not like the rest of us humans. She's just unbelievable, super tough and a very, very important piece of this team too. She's been a huge part of their defensive turnaround as well. Gino's credited her with improving the communication on the defense, which is one of his, which was one of his biggest complaints for the team earlier in the year. I think it's just incredible. I mean, you know, we've talked a lot about, about Paige Beckers. We've talked a lot about, um, I think the upperclassmen, at least, you know, when we talk about the team at the start of the season, um, it's just impressive how many other freshmen are, are contributing. So, you know, we mentioned Mule. Um, Aliyah Edwards deserves her own moment in the spotlight right now for, for the purposes of talking about this team. I don't know that we've seen them have that kind of low post presence. Um, and you can just see what kind of difference it's making. And I think, especially when we think about the postseason, um, it has felt like the teams that are strongest down low have been the ones that give UConn lots of trouble. I'm thinking about like Baylor and Mississippi State um, in the past. So to have an answer to that, I think is really promising. I also just thought it was interesting. Uh, something I, I saw in one of your articles, Connolly, was just the idea that, you know, Gino's saying that the team is a little bit more offense dependent um, than, than previous teams, because even though they are progressing defensively, it still is a young team that's going to make its mistakes. But I think Aliyah Edwards is the kind of player who can help neutralize a lot of that. And then, yeah, I mean, it's just an interesting, an interesting mindset for this team that they're really, they're really going to go into every game, hoping that they can outscore them really is what it's is what that sounded like to me. Yeah. It's just a massive development and look, there's still a chance that they come into a game and their defense gets shredded because you just never know both in the NCAA tournament and with such a young team. But yeah, Edwards is such a huge piece for them because you look at their biggest issue pretty much since Brianna Stewart left is they haven't had the bigs. Obviously, Nafisa Collier was unbelievable, but she was only six one, and strength was never really her game for as great of a player as she was. And I will pine for Nafisa Collier to the death but she wasn't a big, strong 
post player and UConn really struggled against those types of players. And they really didn't have anyone to go up against those types of players. And even you get Olivia Nelson, Adota, she comes in and she's very tall and lanky, but she's also much more of a finesse player. So you get Aliyah Edwards, you bring her in and Aliyah Edwards main job at the beginning of the season was to just foul the crap out of everyone, or at least that's the way she played. And even if that's not exactly how you want things to go, that does set a tone for you. And when teams watch the tape, they're going to see that she earns every single foul that she gets. You don't get away easy with Aaliyah Edwards. So it's a real, and she, the, I think the key piece is she also plays really well with Olivia Nelson at Dota. It's not like, I remember when Azare Stevens was on the team, Nafisa Collier's numbers really took a dip because it was just tough for those two to kind of play on the court together. They didn't really mesh super well. They kind of took up the same spot, whereas Aaliyah Edwards and Olivia Nelson Adota have played really well together. They can be on the court at the same time and really complement each other. So you have the long finesse oriented Nelson Adota, and then you have the just strong, tough Aaliyah Edwards, who will literally send you into the front row if you end up in her way. So she's just been a huge, huge addition for this team. She's been phenomenal as a freshman. It's scary, scary to think about what she's going to be eventually as a junior because she has just, I think, unlimited potential, really. She is so, so, so good. So, yeah, she's definitely a piece that this team's been lacking, and she just seems to be consistently contributing to this team. Even if it doesn't necessarily show up in the stats, she's just always going to give you good minutes out there, and I think that's really, really valuable for this team. Great. So we're waiting to find out what their postseason fate is. Obviously, we're expecting a one seed, um, but we will find out who their bracket, who's in their bracket on Monday the 15th. So one day after the men's selection show. So on to the men's hoops team. Dan Hurley's squad has won four straight games and six out of their last seven heading into the Big East tournament, which will start Thursday night. The Huskies finished the regular season third in the Big East, a tremendous accomplishment for this program in their first year back in the conference. Um, they'll be playing the winner of Providence DePaul, uh, which is the 6-11 game. Um, UConn will be playing Thursday night at 9. Um, I mean, you know, I know we're, we, we said a lot of these things about the women's team just now, but um, you know, you talk about firing on all cylinders right now. Uh, UConn men's hoops is not only firing on all cylinders, but it seems like um, some other external forces are working in their favor that may help them out. So the Huskies are third in the, in the seeding, but top seed Villanova lost their best player for the season. It seems like a serious, serious knee injury. So he's gone the rest of the way. And uh, Creighton's head coach has been suspended indefinitely for saying something he should not have. He's been suspended and recently returned to the team. Um, but still a little bit of a dicey situation for that team. And um, uh, just, you know, a distraction that you don't need heading into the most important time of the year. So um, we're seeing a lot of hype around the Yukon Huskies men's basketball, which is something we probably could not have not been able to say for uh, seven plus years. You know, I think um, really exciting that the Huskies were able to play their way into the NCAA tournament conversation 
Um, looks like right now they're squarely in for an at-large bid. So um, barring a complete disaster of some sort, um, they'll be returning to the NCAA tournament for the first time in five years, which is, which is absolutely amazing. Um, they pretty much needed to win their conference tournament to make the last, last one. So this is really, again, one of the highest quality UConn teams we've seen in a, in a long time for this program. Amazing return. Um, still some upside for this team considering the development in place developments in place, but how are we feeling about, about this team heading into the big East tournament? It's hard not to feel good. I mean, especially after the Georgetown win, which, you know, Georgetown is not, they're a shell of even what they normally are, but they were, you know, playing pretty well as of late and UConn absolutely demolished them 98 to 82 on senior day uh, on, on Saturday. And it really was, you know, it 16 point win is, is still convincing, but it was, the lead was much bigger than that for a good chunk of that game. Um, Book Knight looks healthy. He played 28 minutes, looked good. RJ Cole, uh, you know, didn't have his best scoring game, but still has eight assists. Um, and, you know, we got contributions from Tyrese Martin, Adama Sonogo, Isaiah Whaley, uh, and Jalen Gaffney has really em- emerged as a third guard, uh, from a scoring perspective when Martin hasn't really been scoring. So uh, really, really impressive to see the team score almost 100 points, especially when, you know, we've all seen how bad this offense has looked at times this season. So you're right, Aman. I think this is just kind of the perfect storm where UConn is getting hot at the right time and getting healthy, most importantly. And, you know, Villanova lost Colin Gillespie due to that knee injury. Creighton is, you know, just an absolute it's just chaos there right now uh, re- recovering from, you know, the, the, uh, the terrible things that Greg McDermott said. So I, I think that stuff matters and it's, it's going to change how those two teams play in the tournament. And, you know, UConn may face Creighton if they can get by Providence or DePaul uh, on, on Friday. And even without anything going on with, with Creighton outside of the program, that's a winnable game for UConn. I mean, granted it took 40 points from James Booknight to, stay close the first time, but the second game around without book night, UConn was still in that for a good chunk of that game. So um, I think that's a really winnable game. And, you know, if you make it to the biggest championship game, it's, it's almost a coin flip. UConn's locking up uh, probably as high as a six or a five seed just by making the NCAA, uh, by making the tournament championship game. So anything after that is, is really gravy, especially for the first year back at the conference. So it's exciting. It feels it feels good to see that this team has a lot of momentum. It kind of reminds me of last year, honestly, where Dan Hurley had, you know, a UConn team that wasn't as talented, but still really good with a freshman book night and, you know, Christian Vitale fresh off a win against Houston and, and ready to go down to wherever Dickey's arena is and try and win the AAC tournament. And, you know, obviously COVID had other plans, but it is reassuring to see that Dan Hurley has this program trending in the right direction two years in a row heading into the conference tournament where, you know, last year they needed to win out to try and get in this year. They're a lock to be in the NCAA tournament, but depending on how the chips fall could maybe get as high as a, is a five seed in the NCAA tournament. If they're able to win the whole thing. And if they have to beat Creighton and Villanova, uh, I don't think it's that, uh, it's that out of the question. So, Really encouraging to see, really excited. I've seen UConn's odds to win the Big East as low as plus 150, uh, which is pretty crazy, honestly. Um, 
and I've seen him as high. I was just looking you know, a few seconds before we, we did this here uh, as plus 300. So they're still kind of all over the place, but people are really confident on UConn winning the Big East tournament, and I don't blame them one bit. Do you guys know how far the distance is from Dickey's Arena to Madison Square Garden? I know Dave Benedict knows. It is 1,582 miles. Thank you, David Benedict, for that great piece of information. David Benedict has been on fire on Twitter recently. He has been just all systems go. It's been absolutely great to see. But yeah, it is really nice to see the forces of the universe actually going in UConn's favor because it felt like for so, so long they were going against. Even this season when Book Night goes out, you have one of your best players in the last decade finally health on the team, rolling, the team's looking good, and then he hurts his elbow on a freak play. His elbow, of all body parts, needs surgery all of a sudden, misses a ton of time. Now they're rolling. It really feels like the path is opening up for them, and it's just very exciting. First year back in the Big East. I feel like I say this all the time, but I cannot imagine what Madison Square Garden would be like this weekend with a full crowd of UConn fans for however far they go. I mean, I I don't know if the building could structurally handle what that would be like. It would be like 2014 NCAA tournament type crowds at MSG, I feel like. So it's disappointing in that regard. But yeah, I think this team is just playing really well and for as good as book Knight is and book Knight's by far the best player on this team. But I think the most important player on this team is RJ Cole, because I think we've seen he's been playing just out of his mind recently, or no, I don't feel like he's been playing out of his mind. I feel like he's been playing up to his potential. And because I feel like saying he's playing out of his mind feels like he's, he's playing above his game. He's been pretty much, I think what we kind of expected at the beginning of the season and the difference when RJ Cole is playing well in the offense and the way it flows and the way UConn scores is so, so, so different. Even when book Knight's not on the floor before book Knight got hurt, when RJ Cole is able to score the basketball and he's passing the ball. Well, UConn really doesn't have a whole lot of trouble scoring points, but when He's having trouble. His shots aren't falling. UConn's offense can really grind to a halt. And that's the case if Book Knight's not out there or even if he is out there. So, yeah, Book Knight can create things on his own and can kind of put the team on his back, as we saw in that first Creighton game. But having RJ Cole there and RJ Cole being a consistent contributor, it not only makes it that much easier for Book Knight to score, it kind of opens up the entire floor for UConn. So, if he can keep up this level of play, UConn is a tough, tough team to beat, especially with. Villanova out of the way and I think Villanova was probably as we saw UConn had a lot of trouble against Villanova and couldn't beat him on the road so UConn has to be the favorite coming in just with everything going on and with the way UConn's playing too and it's just so exciting that first year back in the Big East it's not like imagine if this happened two years ago where you get Dan Hurley's first year where yeah there's positive signs things are moving in the right direction but you don't have a chance to win the Big East tournament really they absolutely have a chance to win the Big East tournament it would be great that UConn has taken a nice little seven-year vacation from this conference, still has the most titles, conference titles of all time, and then could come back in their first year and just further extend to that lead. That would just be a very nice return gift. It is disappointing that UConn couldn't get that parting shot of winning the final AAC tournament title, but I think this one would be a lot more fun to win. Yeah, and this and this sends plenty strong of a message to all the folks in the AAC who believed that UConn had nothing to offer in the future, and even to fans across the Big East 
looking at you folks at Xavier Marquette, we have all the receipts on that, uh, that, you know, UConn might not be a good addition, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and, and here's UConn competing, but to go back to RJ Cole and just this team in general, I think it really just speaks to how much credit you need to give to Dan Hurley for the construction of this roster. Um, you know, Cole was a, was an addition via transfer two years ago. You got Tyrese Martin on this team. Who's a transfer, uh, that was eligible immediately and has been a major contributor for this team. And you just think about like what Dan Hurley inherited three years ago. Um, and, and what he's turned that into being able to get this much out of guys like Tyler Polly, uh, and Isaiah Whaley, um, Josh Carlton, and also thank you for your contributions. Um, but, you know, Isaiah Whaley and, and Tyler Pauly are really key parts of this team. Um, and then around that, been able to add guys like, of course, Booknight, um, but also uh, the transfers and, and the depth this team has. To have, to have all that development and growth and progress in, in such a short amount of time, this was not a guarantee. You know, there was no inevitability that that UConn would return to this level of success, which is finishing third in a really great conference, having guys all over the first, you know, all first and second, all league teams, um, you know, getting uh, nice showing in the awards, getting some, getting some postseason hype. I mean, people are not only talking about UConn winning the big East tournament, they're talking about, you know, no matter what seed UConn is, you don't want to face them right now because they're hot. They're as close to full strength as they have been. Um, and that's that's really incredible. So just, you know, credit to Dan Hurley for how far he's taken this UConn team. Currently ranked 23rd in Ken Palm territory. They have not really been in since 2014 and 2011. And, you know, Hurley reminded us after after one of their recent games, but, you know, they were they were ranked 179 at the end of the final season before uh, before Hurley took over. So. Um, just, just, and then uh, again, you give them a lot of credit for, for where they are right now, because, um, obviously being in the big East helps, but, but clearly there's a lot of things that, that Hurley and staff are doing right, especially to have them, you know, playing at the top of their game at, at this point in the season. Yeah. I think what, um, among everything that Dan Hurley's doing, he's also proving that UConn's a legitimate blue bud program. It's not just, Jim Calhoun's program, like a lot of college basketball teams that we see one coach gets there, builds the program up, does great. And then once that coach leaves, they can never get it back to that level. Pretty much besides Kentucky, every single place John Calipari has been. I remember before UConn rejoined the big East and when there were kind of the rumors that would float up and down about UConn possibly interested in joining the big East there were always the voices that were like, oh, well, how do we know that UConn's not just Jim Calhoun's program and it's never going to be good again? Well, I think Dan Hurley is proving very definitively that you can, that UConn is not all about Jim Calhoun. And that's not to knock Jim Calhoun for everything that he did for the program, for being honestly the best head coach in NCAA history, considering what he did at UConn. And when you look at the other guys who would be on that list, they all did it at already established programs. So what Jim Calhoun did at UConn is unbelievable and really hasn't been matched by many other people, but UConn is definitely a blue blood, blue blood program. And I think Dan Hurley is just kind of proving that by getting UConn back to this level at honestly a pretty quick pace. It's year three. He's already got him back in the top 25. 
obviously having a guy like James Booknight helps, but he's also doing this, a lot of this with Kevin Ollie guys, with Isaiah Whaley, Tyler Polly, to a lesser degree, Josh Carlton. He really didn't bring in much of a freshman class his first year here. It's only Brendan Adams and he's kind of fallen out of the rotation. So he's done a ton of this with a chunk of Kevin Ollie guys and then a bunch of his young recruits. So it's just exciting to think about what in two, three, four, five years this might look like when once he's really, really established, has some postseason success and has kind of proven his medal at UConn instead of having to just do everything on his own, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I mean, he has a solid recruiting class coming in too, right? There's no sign of this, this stopping even with book night gone. And, um, you know, I know you mentioned Brendan Adams, Dan, we got to give a shout out to Brendan Adams graduating, uh, in three years with an econ degree, like as a division one student athlete, literally impossible. So shout out to him, but no, I mean, this is, it's an exciting time to be a UConn fan. It seems like everyone's kind of paid their dues for some of the down years in the American. And, uh, now we're reaping benefits as a powerhouse in the big East once again. So it's, uh, it's definitely good to see. And I think that this is sustainable. Like you said, I think Hurley's done a really good job at kind of building a foundation from the bottom up and, you know, bringing in enough players, whether it's through the transfer portal or through elite recruiting classes to keep this going, even when people like James Booknight are going to go play in the NBA. And not, you know, not to get too granular about it too, but just the way that they are beating teams, you know, like we talked about the, the big wins over Georgetown, but the way they put away Marquette and Seton Hall, again, it looks like a much, much more well put together team than before. And, you know, I think something we were discussing before we got hopped on this, but they're just a much more consistent team than maybe we have seen in the past 10 years. You know, if, if we talk about the last 10 years, there's, there's two title teams, but those were both incredibly frustrating squads. This team at, at full or, you know, close to full strength has, has been really quite consistent. I mean, only two losses with book night out. Um, we still haven't had a cook, a cook back, um, which, still holding on to hope that that might be a, a Willis Reed situation in, in the postseason. But, you know, this is a really consistent team that's playing at a high level that has um, a guy in James Booknight who's likely to be the most talented person on the court uh, any time out. And, and we have not had that in a while. So, um, you know, I hope, I hope these last seven years have taught us to savor this moment and, and appreciate it for what it is. Um, the future is really bright, but they're also just – in a place that 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 absolutely was not given to them that they earned and um the the possibilities are are, are super high for this team so uh we'll, we'll be of course watching very closely across the big east tournament reminder that first game is thursday night and then we'll get some good news about about the bracket hopefully uh on selection sunday which is this sunday so great to finally have some some stakes, you know, as we're talking about college hoops. Um, I'll say just as a fan of, of college basketball in general, I would say over the past seven years, I've also kind of stopped watching uh, some of the rest of, of college hoops. But this year was able to come back in a big way just by watching um, Big East games, just by watching Villanova, watching Marquette, Creighton, watching them in their non-conference games, too. Um so that's been that's been enjoyable for me and enjoyable just to have um, more of a sense of what's going on around the country. Um, 
which is why I feel good about UConn's chances to make a little bit of a splash in the NCAA tournament, uh, really no matter where they get seated, to be honest. Right. As much as I dearly, dearly love both those 2011 and 2014 teams, we can't sit here and pretend like there weren't points at that season in those seasons, both of them that didn't make us want to rip our hair out because of the way they played or certain stretches that they went on. I mean, there was that down stretch that the 2011 team had when I think they were as high as ninth in the country, right? They rose pretty high in the AP poll that year, which is as an aside, why I hate people acting like that team came out of nowhere to win the national title, because that team was actually really good and just had one bad stretch, but where it was basically the entire team standing around waiting for Kemba to do something. And then obviously the 2014 team, whenever they went up against Louisville, it was always pretty ugly. So yeah, those, those two teams were not just always joys to watch as, as great as it did end up. So this team, really the only time that have made me want to throw things through a TV have been when James Booknight has been out. And I think pretty much everyone can share that feeling. But when James Booknight's in the lineup, UConn almost always plays at least at an acceptable level, I guess is the way to put it. They've always been good. And their two losses without him have come against Creighton, which honestly is a game they should have won. And at Villanova, which... It's, it's Villanova. They're a tough team. Beating Villanova on the road is always going to be tough, especially when I think we can admit UConn, when Villanova was at full strength, they were a better team than UConn. So yeah, I think it's just very exciting times. And I, it's so, it's so, so nice to be talking about March in for men's basketball. We were talking before the show, like we've never really covered a good UConn team here at the UConn blog. So the vibes are good. It's here. The vibes are fantastic. So let's wrap things up with, with one hot take slash bold prediction for the postseason. I can get started, but you guys, you guys marinate on your own. Mine is that we see at least two 30 point games from James Booknight. I think we will, I think we'll get that from him possibly against, against, you know, Providence if in in all likelihood I could see it happening against Providence and then I could see it happening also um, in the first first round of the NCAA tournament especially if they can grab you know a higher seed but uh, put me down for two two 30 point James Booknight games across the Big East tournament and NCAA tournament okay I've got a pretty spicy one mine is that UConn in the Big East tournament wins the Big East tournament by at least double digits in every single game because because i just am not impressed like you just look at their path and i don't think they're going to have any trouble with either team that they play in that first round uconn's already played creighton twice only one of those times came with james book night i think if they're going to be very very motivated to play creighton again and then i don't think anyone in that other side of the bracket really even is that dangerous? I mean, Seton Hall is the four seed, and I think UConn showed what it can do to Seton Hall just this past week. Maybe St. John's gives him some trouble, but I think Hurley, with his old tweets that he's apparently going to dig up for this tournament, he's going to have them both fired up. And just, I think Creighton's really the only team that has the firepower to stay with them. And I think UConn's going to be motivated to beat them based on what's happened this season as well. So I think UConn wins every game in the Big East tournament by at least double digits. 
and I think they get to the second round of the NCAA tournament. I don't know how far they go because I still feel like there's a little too much. Not that this team is inconsistent, but I still don't know how great of a sense we have of how they can do against these top teams in the country. So I think sweet 16 is a realistic goal. All right. So I don't think it's a hot take to say that UConn will win the big East. So I'll, I'll, I'll say this. I think that UConn is going to make the NCAA tournament and be a six seed or better Nice. comes election Sunday. I, I think, you know, I do think they're going to make a run in the big East tournament, whether they win it, make the championship game or, you know, worst case, I think they win one game and, and hang tight with Creighton. But I think that would be, you know, almost a doomsday scenario, given the way this team is playing. We don't know how the committee is going to rank any of these games. This is the weirdest pan, you know, weirdest year on record for the NCAA tournament. James Booknight, the best, you know, one of the best players in the country, UConn's best player, missed at least half of UConn's games or, or roughly half of UConn's games. Um, and I could easily see the tournament or the committee seeing how well UConn has played over the last five to six games, including the conference tournament and rewarding UConn with a matchup that recognizes how well they've been playing. And that would not be putting them in an eight, nine game where they'd have to take on a number one seed um, and maybe not even a seven, 10 game, but they certainly have the potential to be that good. I think if they can win the Big East tournament and beat Creighton and Villanova. I could see them as high as a four seed. I, I don't think it's out of the question. We normal logic is, is just completely out the window this year with no non-conference games. And uh, some of the seeds that UConn has got in the past, or at least during the American athletic conference era was always weighted down by the conference, not even necessarily because the AIC was so flawed, but some of the years like in 2014, uh, the conference was brand new. The committee didn't really know how, th- how it played into the seedings. Uh, obviously that got better as, as time went on. UConn didn't make the tournament that much during the AAC, but I think now with a known entity in the Big East, a hot UConn team and, you know, a strong Big East tournament performance, I think a, a five seed, six seed, even a four seed is, is very much in play. Nice. Yeah. I, I honestly totally agree with you. I think UConn will end up better seeded than it has been in the, in all the bracketologies we've been seeing obviously they have to go kind of really strictly on resume. Um, but I, I totally agree with your point that the committee, if they're smart and if they do what they say they do and act somewhat consistent with how they've acted in the past, um, are, are likely to really evaluate UConn by what they've done with book night on the roster. And, and that has been good. So I, I think there's tons of validity to that. And then to that point, because there's so much confusion, I think that opens it up for just, you know, lots of wackiness um, in, in the bracket this year. So I think we'll see, this is kind of a non UConn prediction, but I just think we'll see a lot of upsets around the bracket altogether. So even if UConn is a, is a seven ten, um, is in a seven ten game, I would like their chances against a two seed. Cause who knows, you know, like I, I think this year with, with the field um, and again, I'm not going to pretend to be some national hoops expert here, but to me, it seems like there's like Gonzaga, Baylor, Michigan. There's definitely like Iowa, Illinois. After that, seems pretty wide open to me. So I, I would like UConn's chances against the two. And just in general, I would say, you know, because of this, this weirdness, um, you know, the, the chances for a Sweet 16 run, which, which would be an amazing cap to, to this season, the, the possibilities are there for sure. 
Love the takes. Love the takes, guys. That's going to do it for us. Thank you all for listening.